This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Blessed Sunday to you, this middle of July, 2023. Today we're going to go over the temptation of Christ in the desert, the first of the temptations of Christ in the desert. And we turn to uh, Monsignor Ronald Knox for this. And if you are not familiar with Monsignor Knox, perhaps maybe new to my channel or new to my weekend content, Monsignor Knox was the translator of the Knox edition of the Bible, which happened late 19th, early 20th century. It's an English language translation, considered traditional, um, usually considered secondarily to the Dewey Rams. I personally like the Knox translation for more, we'll say, casual biblical reading compared to the Dewey Rams for uh, more official things. But it's a the Knox is a wonderful translation in its own right. He uh, was also a prolific writer. He wrote a great deal on uh, the life of our Lord and on the faith through his earthly ministry. Today we turn to his uh, analysis of what Satan was attempting in the what we'll call the first temptation of Christ which was the turning of stones into bread. Stones into bread. The tempter came and said to him, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. He answered and said, Man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 3. It was part of the humiliation which our Lord took upon himself in his incarnation that he would allow himself to be tempted by the enemy of souls. It is interesting to notice the resemblance there is between these temptations and those which continually assail his mystical body, the church. Temptation means testing, and it is easy to miss the point of the story in great measure if you lose sight of that. The devil was testing our Lord was conducting a series of experiments in order to find out something he wanted to know. What he wanted to know was simply whether our Lord was or was not the Son of God, whether therefore the devil's undisputed sway on earth was to be brought to an end. It was the devils, you will remember, who were the first to acclaim our Lord under a divine title, and he made them hold their peace, because he did not wish his secret to be let out in that way. They did not, I think, know for certain who our Lord was, but they had guessed it, guessed it as the result of these experiments conducted in the wilderness. They were inconclusive experiments, as we shall see, but they pointed towards the truth which hell feared, that the conqueror of hell had come to earth in man's flesh. If thou be the son of God, the devil did not really mean that. He meant, if thou be the son of man. He who stands there in the wilderness is either incarnate God, or he is a man singularly favored by heaven. His endurance of the forty days fast is enough to show that. In either case, he will have the power to turn stones into bread, or at least he will think that he has the power. If he is the Son of God, the suggestion will have no influence upon his will. It will fall off harmlessly like a child's dart striking a stone wall. If he is only man, then it may be, you cannot be certain, but it may be, that he will succumb. He will use his miraculous powers to relieve his own hunger, and the test will be conclusive. But what the devil said was, if thou be the son of God, not, I think, this time in a challenging tone, as if he doubted it, that comes later, but in a casual way, assuming it as if it were a matter of course. 
You are hungry. It is a long distance to the nearest village. A voice from heaven has just assured you that you are the Son of God. Would it not be simplest to provide for your needs by a miracle? Our Lord does not meet the challenge. He is content to wait until the occasion arises upon which he will feed 5,000 hungry souls. He does not respond to the test. There is nothing in his answer to show whether he claims to be something of higher stature than man. For answer, he takes up the train of associated ideas which have lent the tempter's suggestion its force and turns them inside out. The train of thought surely by which the devil sought to work upon our Lord's mind was round flat stones looking like loaves of bread. Moses fasting in the wilderness, Moses giving bread to the people in the wilderness. These stones could be turned into bread, satisfying as manna to the Israelites. Our Lord replaces that by a fresh train of association. It runs. Moses fasting in the wilderness. Why? To receive the law. The law written on two tables of stone. Flat stone in the wilderness, waiting to receive the new law. For that, men's souls are hungering. So he will retort the devil's suggestion on its author by setting out, in a phrase drawn from the Old Testament but now for the first time made classical, the eternal contrast between the two elements in man, the beast part which hungers with the beasts, the angel part which lives like the angels on obedience to divine will. Non in solo pane, there is work to be done. He has come to satisfy something higher than bodily cravings. Neither of the two evangelists who record the temptation suggests even the possibility that any third person was present. It is a curious reflection, therefore, that we probably derive our whole account of the circumstances from our Lord himself. And if he was at pains to tell his disciples afterwards about a scene so very personal in character, it must have been surely because he wanted to give us an example to imitate, because he wanted our attitude in face of temptation to be the same, according to our measure, as his. Nor was he thinking only, I suspect, of those temptations which assail individual Christians as individuals, his church, which is his mystical body, is united with him, as we know, in his prayer, in his ministry for souls, in his sufferings, in his glory. Is it too much to expect that she will be united with him in his temptations too? That the tempter will come to her and whisper, If you are really divine in origin, show it by doing this or that. A very little reflection will show that this is constantly her experience, not least in these days when she enjoys a position of scarcely enviable prominence in the world so full of controversy and unrest. Non solo in pane, our Lord, not merely in the hour of his temptation, but all through his ministry, was continuously eager, in his great pity, to provide for the material wants of the multitude which flocked about him, to heal their sick, to relieve their distress. And always you find him thwarted in this ambition of his by their lack of faith. Once the sacred author goes so far as to say, how could he could not do many miracles there by reason of their unbelief? Does that mean that the theandric virtue which went out of him was limited in its effect by the disposition of the patient? That belief in his miraculous powers was actually a condition without which their exercise was impossible? To suggest that would be not only theologically intolerable, but inconsistent with the evidence at our disposal. When he cured the palsied man in the house, he was rewarding, not his faith, but the faith of those who carried him. When he was asked to heal the child of the Syrophoenician woman, it was in the mother that he demanded faith, not in the daughter. No, his miracles depended on antecedent faith, not in the sense that his power was limited, but in the sense that his mission was first to men's souls, to their bodies, not only incidentally. He had come not to improve their material condition, but to awaken them to that belief in him, which is the gate of eternal life. 
the church, a spiritual organization whose office is to train men's souls for heaven, has continually found herself under a charitable necessity of ministering temporal relief to her own children. The first resolution she ever took was that her clergy should be left to their prayers, undisturbed by financial anxieties. The first she ever took, and perhaps we ought to add, the last she has ever kept. All through St. Paul's epistles, if you read them attentively, for he shows an exquisite tact in dealing with the subject, he is constantly coming back to one great preoccupation, the collection for the poor saints at Jerusalem. And all throughout the centuries, the church has had to act in great measure as a nursing mother to the faithful, not content to be merely their teacher in the faith, providing schools, hospitals, orphanages, tending the sick, relieving the poor, burying the dead. She has drawn a whole network of charitable institutions across the world, vying with one another in the service of men's bodies. And always, that is not the point. With the other Christianities, there is a constant risk that their spiritual message will lose itself in philanthropic endeavor. The movement, which began in an excess of burning zeal for men's souls, will have been replaced, a century or two later, by a vast organization, religious in name, but merely philanthropic in purpose. With the Catholic Church, so much older than these others, it has never been so. Her messages of the world beyond, on it her eyes are set. She tends, feeds, teaches her children distractedly, only that she may point them to heaven. She will not lose her soul in what the world calls charity. The final words in that, I think, are telling. How often do we see people reducing what the church does in our time to her earthly mission? Not to the salvation of her souls, her eternal mission, but to the needs of the flesh, to material needs. If the crisis in the church can really be summed up in anything, it is that the church has practically turned its eyes away from the salvation of souls and into the salvation of feelings, and the salvation of stomachs, and the salvation of things. That, that is, of course, temporary. This crisis in the church, even though it's been going now for 60 years in an overt way, since Vatican II, but really going gone on before that, you will... It, this is temporary. This crisis will be alleviated at some point in the future. Perhaps sometime in the near future, as things seem to be coming to a head. But Monsignor Knox's words here are really worth reflecting upon. How he doesn't condemn other, the other forms of Christianity because they're schismatic and heretical and everything else. He just points out the truth, the most basic truth, it is the falsity of their claims can be seen in how they've become materialistic. Some of them becoming, most of them becoming philanthropic organizations, but also, at least in America, some of them just becoming glorified political organizations that have a, uh, you know, a rock concert on Sunday. I mean, he's not wrong when he says they became philanthropic organizations. I wonder what he would think today, seeing how many of them just became political organizations. I'm curious what you think of this. So, let me know in the comments. Do you think his... His admonition at the end there was uh, was so on the nose it's spooky. Let me know what you think about this. And like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So does sharing this on social media. That helps a lot too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.